My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight's a guy I've been waiting for for a long time. It's Dr. Jason Piccolo. He's the host of the Protectors Podcast, which is a podcast that brings true life stories from law enforcement, military, and first responders, our nation's protectors, and those that support them. He's also the author of two books, Out of the Shadow, a government whistleblower's firsthand account of how the protection of migrant children became a political firestorm, an unwavering, a border agent's journey. Last but not least, Jason is a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom, serving as a captain in the U.S. Infantry. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, welcome to me. I'm so used to hosting my own show. I'm like, hey, welcome to the show. So, hey, thanks for having me on, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited to talk to you because there's so much to to talk about. Uh, not only you, but you have a wife that's in law enforcement. I mean, you have a huge background. You've worked on the border. You've been in Washington, D.C. talking about it. So there's a lot of stuff to go over. So let's just jump right into it. I want to talk about as a child, did you know this was the route that you were going to take because you spent your entire adulthood doing it? No, absolutely not. When I when I was a child, I wanted to be in the Army. I knew that. Okay. I knew I wanted to be a policeman. But I didn't know how I would get there. I always thought, like, I grew up in New Jersey. So back then, you know, unless you knew someone or you had some sort of, like, you know, special characteristics they were looking for, it was really tough to get into law enforcement, to break into that, you know, it's kind of like the good old boys network back then, because we're talking early 90s, uh, late 80s. So my goal was to join the Army, uh, be a soldier, uh, because that's something I always wanted to do. So I did that. Yeah, I joined the Army. Uh, 13 Bravo Cannon crew member. And then when I got out, I decided to go to college. And because I knew the next step I wanted to do is I wanted to get into federal law enforcement. So I knew I needed to have a degree. So I got a degree and then I followed my best friend into the U.S. Border Patrol. So and that's how I ended up on the southwest border back in January of 2000. Well, a lot of our paths cross a whole bunch without really even knowing it. So I was in the military, too. I was in the Army. I remember one time when I was out in the field that I thought it was pouring down rain on us. I was a Ford observer. I was a 13 Foxtrot. Um, it was pouring down rain on us. And I thought there's got to be a fucking better way than this uh, to get through life. So I thought about the same thing. I got out. I went to college, um, not because I wanted to go into federal law enforcement, but I, I wanted to finish that education just so I guess you would say I had that to fall back on. But I wanted uh -huh. to go into law enforcement. Um, whether that be uh, local or federal, but I was thinking more along the lines of local. Um, we both worked down on the border as a military police officer. When I changed over MOSs, I worked down at Fort Huachuca, which is right next to the border. You got the Coronado Mountains right there where people are coming through. And so when I heard about your story and I started looking into it, I thought, man, this is, this is crazy how much uh, people share kind of a common a, a, almost like a common line of their history that do the kind of jobs that we've done in life. 
Um, and, and I really want to focus on that because you come from not really, um, that kind of background, right? No, not at all. I, um, actually just, <laughs> I did the DNA about five years ago. And before I did the, the rapid, not rapid DNA, but the DNA analysis, nobody I knew in my family was ever in the military. Uh, it turns out when I did the DNA, my biological grandfather was artillery in World War One. Oh, wow. So it's very, very, very interesting to find out that one, I had a grandfather who has since passed years and years ago, and that he was artillery. And it was and then the way I found out he was artillery because his gravestone had, you know, Charlie battery, something, something. Uh, and it said World War One. So it's very interesting, but no, I did not have anybody in my background that had the military. Everybody's always been business centric or money centric, and I've never really been that way. So I wanted to do something that, you know, gave back to the country, gave back to the nation while also um, getting myself a, a whole lot of education based off of the military. And I took advantage of it. You know, in the beginning, I didn't really plan on, you know, I went to community college, failed out of that. Uh, before I went into the army and after the army, I had like just a different drive. I'm sure you had, and I'm sure a lot of veterans have it. Absolutely. And I ended up, you know, the, I knocked out my four year degree in two and a half later on. I got the master's, a doctor and everything. And a lot of that had to do with the pre nine 11 GI bill and the post nine 11 GI bill. So I'm very fortunate to have that. And like you said, there's a lot of us that have the same path across. And I always recommend people like yourself or other people that are listening. If you have a background and you've have a lot of experience, volunteer, help a veteran out. Because a lot of them don't know what their next path is. And Absolutely. that is one thing I'm very passionate about is I've been volunteering with different veteran organizations from Hire Heroes USA to American Corporate Partners for the past several years now, just helping veterans kind of get to that next step, help them with the resume reviews, help them say, Hey, you know what? I've been here. I've done that. You might want to look at this path. So yeah, definitely. Uh, did not see any of this when I was 10, 11 years old, growing up by the Appalachian mountains. I did not see myself here <laughs> in Washington, DC talking now, on a microphone. <laughs> now, uh, another common thread, um, your parents, uh, had problems when you were growing up. Um, I, now I never moved out of the house. My parents divorced when I was young. I never moved out, but you moved out at 15. Then I guess you came back, then moved back out at, at 17. The guy that you lived with, um, is who you joined the military with, correct? Yeah. He went into the Navy and I ended up going into the army and it was just a, it was interesting. Because he wanted to be a Navy SEAL so bad, and he could have done it, but he had color blindness. So he ended up becoming a CB and did five years, and now he's a surveyor. Really good guy. We're still best friends. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't have the best childhood in the world. But I never, you know, maybe back in the day. But I haven't. I I don't use my childhood as a crutch. Absolutely. I use it as a learn. I use it as a learning experience. Because I'm a dad now, and I always make sure my kids know I love them. I support them. Um, and I try not to be a helicopter parent. I try to make them make their own mistakes and, and move on and drive on and not be money centric, not be narcotic centric, like some of the, uh, my other family members and stuff like that, but try to have their own lives, but learn. Well, you know, 
I I have a feeling from from hearing other interviews that you've done and, and and reading about you and stuff that this friend of yours was he kind of the thing that pushed you towards the military? I mean, I I know you both went separate ways, but was was it more of you and him talking kind of like, hey man, there's got to be a better way out there? And that's the kind of way I looked at it first was just like you went to community college when I got out of high school, and I'm like, man, I am not up for this right now. I'm not. I'm just not centered for it. I, I'm not I'm not focused on it yet. And I thought, let me go do this. Let me knock this out. I ended up staying a while. And uh but I came out, like you said, with a whole new focus on life. So was was he more of your your kind of driving force, you two talking together? No, not at all. I've really I've always been you know, I've always been like the camo kid in the backyard, uh playing Rambo, watching Platoon a million times and having that want to be a soldier so bad more than a lot of things I've ever wanted to do. Well, what I thought was interesting was you were enlisted artillery. Then you Uh go and you, you get uh, your, you, you become an officer and you go back infantry. Now, first off, you. (laughs) that's a funny story. (laughs) So I, uh, I go to my recruiter and it's the end of September. Or no, it was the beginning of September when I go to MEPS. Because um, actually, let's backtrack. I initially joined the U.S. Army Reserves. Okay. I go to my first drill without going to basic training. And I joined, and this is back then, the reserves could be infantry. So I joined as an 11 Charlie. I didn't know what that was. I knew it was infantry. Okay. So I, I go and I talk to the captain. That's at drill weekend. I go, so sir, I didn't know. I didn't call him sir back then. I was like, hey, you know, uh, <laughs> when can I go to ranger school? he's like, we're met. You're never going to go to ranger school. Uh, you're never going to go to any schools. I'm like, okay. I go to my, after that one drill, I go to my recruiter. I'm like, look, I want active duty. I want a ranger contract. I want everything, blah, blah, blah. He goes, we're going to file a hardship saying that you can't live on the outside. I'm like, and you need to go active duty and we'll get you out there as soon as possible. And I'm like, I didn't know any better. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So I go down to MEPS. In September of 93, and I go, I want, you know, airborne infantry, blah, blah, blah. And the, the MEPS guy's like, nah. It's the end of the fiscal year. He's like, we got two options. I think one was a carpenter. I, I always remember a carpenter. I don't know if it really was. And one was artillery. And I'm like, hell no, I don't want to do artillery. He goes, well, you're going to be stuck in a system forever. And it might be a year before you can go in. And I'm like, uh, well, whatever. He goes, look, you go in. You could do anything you want uh, as soon as you get in. So I'm like, you know, I'm a, a naive guy at the time. I'm like, sure. So I go in and I uh, join artillery and I did not go to a light unit. I went to self-propelled artillery at Fort Carson, Colorado. So <laughs> that is how I ended up as a 13 Bravo. So I guess there's no loyalty to that family then. No, 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 no. And when I got out, actually, um, when I went to college, I joined an MI unit. Uh, doing human stuff for a little while, you know, just to kind of nip that, see if I really liked MI. And then I, I decided to do the infantry thing because I planned on standing. Uh, I wanted to go active duty at first, but then, you know, that's the other thing is when you graduate so quick with the ROTC program, my wife and I are commissioning dates would have been like six months off. And we would have been away from each other for another year. Right. So I ended up uh, joining the Border Patrol. And that's where I ended up uh, in San Diego. I actually ended up at the same station as my best friend. 
So, oh, nice. Yeah. Really yeah. So <laughs> let me ask you. So when you go back to, to become an officer, do you go under that, that like green to gold where you're OE1 and you're kind of a different, uh, I, I, I always called it a different playing field than those other guys. Cause you have your enlisted feet underneath you. Um, you're making a little better money. Is that the route that you went on that? No, because I didn't get a, a scholarship and I didn't go right from active duty. Green to gold is like when you get a scholarship and you leave active duty to go okay. into reserves. So I didn't okay. do that. So you come back in different lifestyle as an officer. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but you know, I, when I started working the border, I didn't have time for it. So I went into the inactive ready reserves. Okay. So I didn't spend much time in drilling until I got recalled in 05. So, yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into that because I think you did a little more IRR stuff when you got recalled. Mm -hmm. um, I think they put you in charge of some IRR. So yeah, let's, they, let's move to the border patrol. So you go to the border patrol. Now, when you went to uh, the academy to become border patrol, the way I understood it, you went to Fletzy, correct? Yeah. Okay. I went to the one in Georgia because at the time border patrol was going through Charleston and Georgia. Yeah. So the the Fletzy Center there. Um, in my current job, I work with those guys a lot for their uh, interview and interrogation schools, um, and it's a uh, it's. It's, it's a whole different world the way they train. Um, they have so many resources that, that local doesn't necessarily have. They can train at such a different level. So when you go there, you've been through basic, you've been through um, everything that you've gone through. Was it a cakewalk to go through it, or, or were you a little now, stressed out? Border Patrol, yeah, Border Patrol was stressful because you had to learn immigration law, which is – Ugh, you know, it's like nothing you've ever studied before. But then you also had to learn Spanish. Okay. And if you're non-native, it's pretty tough to learn. And if you don't pass these tests, so after the academy, you have a test at six months and a test at 10 months. And if you fail, you're fired. You know, there is no second chance. So it's very stressful. The academy itself was for the Border Patrol is very paramilitary, uniform, uh, marching everywhere, you know, like, it was just like the military. So it wasn't that tough. It was fun. You know, the shooting, I think, was some of the best shooting I've done um, outside of, you know, my personal shooting and stuff like that. But, yeah, yeah. The, the shooting was great. Yeah, I, I, I would agree in law enforcement. There's just a different way that they, they teach. I, I've always said uh, when I went to rifle school and stuff that I learned more in a week's time than I probably learned in five years in the, in, in the military working at the rifle range and, you know, going yeah, to the rifle absolutely. range and stuff just because it's so intense. And, and there's so, to me, there's so much difference in law enforcement when they're teaching how to handle a firearm, how to fire a firearm, because every bullet that leaves that chamber, you know, you're accountable for uh -huh. it. So it's a, it's on a whole different level. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. So as you get out of uh, the Border Patrol Academy and you move, where are your areas of operation that you're going? I went to San Diego. It's right by Otay Mesa. So it's right, it's kind of the Mesa and the mountains. So I work right around a uh, commercial port of entry and then I actually work the mountain range as well. So it was kind of, it was a very interesting place and uh, a lot of different geography, which was, I, I liked it. I like having the options. 
when you go there, um, let's talk about what you see. Because what year are we arriving? What year are we at right now? This is 2000. Okay, so at 2000, 9-11 hasn't happened. So there's still a, to me, because let's see, uh, I was still in, I was at Huachuca. So there was still almost a human trafficking uh, kind of narco-terrorism um, that was like the main focus, uh, and, and, you know, narcotics trafficking uh-huh. when you're there, what, first off, what are you, what are you looking to do? Because everyone has something when they get there, they have in their mind, this is what I want to do. Of course, every new guy wants to save the world and all that kind of stuff. But what was, what was the focus that you really wanted to look at? I really just wanted the track. And okay. I got my first taste of it. So when col- when I was in college, my best friend was already out there. He was out there for a few years before I got there. And he brought me up to the mountain range. And here I am in sneakers, and we're, we're tracking groups. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to just track. I wanted to have the option of being a partner or being solo and just going out there and tracking groups out. It didn't matter if they were, you know, narco traffickers bringing backpacks of drugs across families or anything. I just wanted to track. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. And that's the one thing I really enjoyed. You know, later on when I was, I was in only, only in a border patrol for two and a half years before I went to work as a special agent. But the last six months I was there, I was with the ATV unit, which was, <laughs> you know, you're getting paid to drive ATVs at midnight. And uh, it was incredible. Great experience. In, in talking about that, when you say that you go to that unit and you like it so much, was it that you still really wanted to go um, to another level or what was it about that made you change out of that? Because it sounds like you were having a good time. You were doing exactly what you wanted to do tracking. You're in the ATV unit. What made you decide that you want to kind of switch gears again? Well, you know, being a uniform border patrol agent, it's fine. You know, it's great. You could, you could do a lot with it, but there's a lot of politics management at the time. I don't know. Hopefully it's been a lot better since then. Wasn't the most, um, you know, there was not the greatest in the world. So I decided to move on. And that's why, you know, I wanted to do something more. I love the idea of being a special agent and putting the pieces of the puzzle together and not just stopping traffic, not just going after traffic, but actually looking for the organizations, looking for who is in charge of these things and how can we, you know, stop the bigger picture stuff. When you were down and you were actually working um, out in the field as a uniformed, um, we I came across you guys a lot. As I said, I was military police at Fort Huachuca. So we came across a lot of people trying to cross over. They were using our ranges to get through. Uh-huh. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit because at that time, I noticed a lot of problems with the Border Patrol, not the guys that are on the ground working, but the overall idea of the Border Patrol. So what would happen was we would have people coming across our ranges. We would pick them up, get them all together, get identification, call for Border Patrol, a bus or whatever would show up. They would give them a juice box, a set of crackers, uh, get their names, take them to the border, kick them back out. We'd see them again a week later, two weeks later, Uh whatever it was. So that's the first problem that I saw. I don't know how much better it's gotten. I think you would be able to tell that better. But another problem that I saw was, it's like you said, it's almost like a a factory. You grab them, push them back, see them again. Grab them, push them back, see them again. 
And when you're dealing with it, yes, you're dealing with bad guys, but the majority you're dealing with families that are trying to get yep. across. And yeah, then and that's one thing. Yeah. I always have to preface that, that that is one thing you have to understand about the border. It, that's why immigration is so charged. So many people will say, oh, well, they're here illegally. You know what? We should shoot them or do this or do that. No. When you're dealing with families and you're dealing with little kids, little babies, little everything coming across the border, the more humanitarian side of an agent will come out. And you'll see that. Um, there was there were so many times I would encounter a family and it was just a father, a son, a mother, everybody together. And it wasn't they're like, look, we're just coming here for the, the American way of life. It wasn't like this, you know, why, yes, there are the gangbangers and yes, there are the other really bad types. But, you know, overall, though, it is families. And that's why, you know, back then they weren't even doing the full fingerprint checks. It was mostly just the, you know, the index or you weren't right. doing the five finger checks on everybody. And then you have the serial killer. What was his name? Ramirez? You had Richard Ramirez. Now, who's the one that was doing the, uh, the, he was an illegal that was coming and he was going on the railroad tracks and killing people all across Texas. Uh, that's what really I can't think of his name, but he actually came through Dallas and got a couple, uh, got a couple people as he was coming through the, he was the railroad killer. Yeah. Um, and and I, that's I, why they, they started doing the five prints. And so that brings up a topic to me because th- I think more than anything now, politics aside, this is a heated debate. I think it's been a heated debate since you were there. I was there. Um, but I think that a lot of things maybe haven't changed. So when I talk about the families, so the problem that we would have is you, they come across um, the people that were bringing them across, they were charging like $10,000 a head at the time. Um, they would drop them at Fort Huachuca, tell them that it was Tucson and just boot them out. Uh-huh. So they don't make it to their destination. They don't make it to who they're meeting with. Then the other problem that we had was when they didn't necessarily pick up a coyote or someone to bring them across, um, what would happen was they would come across and we had two differing factors and I want to get your ideas on both. So we had the friends of the desert, which was a group that walked through the desert, left water, left food all along the mass trails that were coming through. So we ran into a problem. Then we had the Minutemen who were farmers, ranchers, who were defending their property. Now, I have to preface that by saying, let's say 99% of them were protecting their property, protecting their rights. But you run into a problem where you have uh, maybe unnecessary shootings that are going on and different things that are happening down on the border. So first off, let's talk about the Minutemen. And I want your thoughts on them because I'm sure that you've heard about them in all the dealings that you've done. Yeah, well, you know, one thing about being in law enforcement, and I and this always, I always say this about trafficking as well, human trafficking, sex trafficking, is there is no room for vigilante. Now, you could be a great witness, you could be a great observer, you could take license plates, you could take pictures, but the minute you introduce yourself putting hands on another person, it, and you don't have the training, you're not law enforcement, you don't know about the fourth amendment you don't know about use of force you don't know about like when you shoot someone that bullet goes through them it goes into other people there's a lot of different factors and this even goes with militarizing the border the reason they stopped doing the, the joint task force is because i believe it was in the 1990s a marine reservist or a marine active duty shot a kid 
So there's reasons you have law enforcement. There's reason you have observers. The Minutemen, they may have the right intentions, but the minute you become militarized, you put hands on people and you start pointing weapons at people, it, there's a lot of liability there and there's a lot of really opportunity for not only them to get shot by either you know the traffickers or stuff but also by law enforcement not knowing who they are so there's a lot of different variables to that you know you have there's a reason that a lot of these academies and stuff are four or five months long you have that much time to one realize what you're getting yourself into and two is learning what you need to do when you get out there i would agree I would say this. I think that a lot of people would argue the point like they said. Well, I think people look at things in a very microscopic look. They don't look at the entire picture of it. So they say, well, you have drugs coming across. You have bad guys coming across. And you're, of course you're going to focus in on the bad guys. That's, that's human nature for people to focus in on the bad guys. The problem with it becomes is everybody becomes a bad guy. So when everything looks like a nail, you become a hammer. And so I, I think that there is a, a balance because I, I think on the other side of it, we have to talk about the Friends of the Desert. Now, I'm sure you've heard of them, too. Um, I think that they create in their own their own pro set of problems. I think they create um, confusion and uh, a lot of um, unnecessary I might even say deaths because you get these people that travel into the desert depending on that stuff to be there when it's not there or someone doesn't make their, their drop of water and stuff, they create a whole new set of problems. I, and I don't know if you agree with that, but that's the way I look at it. No, it's true. That, that I, I've said this a million times on a million different podcasts, but the border is 2000 miles long, you know, for the East coast people, it's from Maine to Miami. I say this every time it's that long. Can you imagine getting lost in one of the mountainous areas, one of the, the remote areas on 2000 miles, and you expect to have hydration point, you could die of exposure in days, less than days without fluid. And that is a reason why the Border Patrol has special units, the Borsar unit, and everybody else is out there trying to help migrants come across the border and save them. But when you start putting these these points out there and you're not staffing them, you're you're making them go even further into the desert, it's it's not a good thing. Now, if you want to sit there, you want to go out there and you want to sit and you want to hand them water. But if someone's going to go and expect that to be there, you how many thousands over the years, thousands and thousands have died of exposure because a lot of people don't realize it is not easy to see anybody hiding under a bush. It's not like everybody has thermal. Everybody has right. every sensor you can imagine. During the day, people lay up under bushes. They cool off, at night they move. So if someone lays up under a bush and they haven't had hydration, they don't have any sustenance, and they end up passing out, they die. There is nobody coming to save them because nobody knows where they are. So I guess I'm going to ask a very open-ended question, but I, I want to see if you can narrow it down a little bit. 
So first off, what do you see as the problem and how do we start moving towards the, the fixing of the problem? And then finally, what is the first steps of the fixing of the problem? Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hit the timer. And in about 72 hours, when you and I get done with this <laughs> podcast, we're going to see how much we got. Here's a simple solution. Take this, you know, 50 million pages of immigration law and start piecing it, piecemeal it. Right now, everybody wants to come across the border because they think amnesty is going to come. They think if they get here now that they're going to have a chance at being a citizen or getting some sort of lawful permission to be here. Um, we need to say, hey, look, it's not going to happen. We're putting a moratorium on that. It's not going to happen because right now the PR campaign going on down south is get here now, get your foothold here, yep. and you're, you might have an opportunity to stay. That is how you have to stop that PR campaign down south. And then you also need to fix the problems down south of what's going on in their country. Why are they coming here? And why are they have to transit through Mexico? So we need to have stronger relationships with Mexico. And to fix the problem with these austere environments is you need to have certain parts of the border that have a wall. And, you know, being in the military, you know that if you want to have traffic funneled into certain areas, you have to have choke points. So you don't need a 2,000 mile wall. You don't. It's not, it's not even practical. But you do need to focus and move that traffic into certain areas where you can use technology. You could use the boots on the ground. You could use the drones. You could use the, the blimps. You could use everything to see where that traffic's coming from. But first, you got to stop the trafficker from wanting to come here. And that also means that you need to look at these corporations that are hiring these people. There are so many factories or so many farmlands or so many everything that are hiring people who, to come here to work. I like to tell people, I'm like, nobody in America is going to do that job. Well, the problem with that is this. You bring these, let's say you bring a thousand and you put them in a factory and that the working conditions are absolutely horrible. People are passing out. They're getting paid eight, nine bucks an hour, or maybe they're getting paid 15 bucks an hour, but they don't have any recourse if anything happens to them. They don't have any recourse if someone's working them 20 hours a day. They don't have any recourse if they're all being housed in on-site 30 people to a room because they don't have any documentation. They don't fall under the same rights. They don't fall under the same employee rights. And these people are working off the books, maybe with a fake social security and a fake number. That is why you saw a couple years ago, um, Homeland Security Investigations was going to do these big warehouse uh, roundups and they were arresting all the people that were working there, but then they were releasing them after they got statements. Because what they were doing is they were building white collar criminal investigations against these factories that were employing all these thousands come across. So that is the other thing. We need to have um, worksite enforcement, and we're talking with these major corporations that are bringing, it's the pull factor. So not only do you have that, and down south, it's the immigration law. And with we both know that with politics the way they are right now, nothing's going to happen. So you're going to the numbers right now are what are we at? 1.2 million already this year, this fiscal year alone. 
Right. Well, what I was going to what I was going to ask you on that when you say with politics the way they are, that's never going to change. I I think that we're sending a mixed message. First off, before Biden and the uh, current presidency, the executive got into that position, it was bring us your tired, your poor, your hungry, all that kind of stuff, because I I, I feel like that helped voting. I, I really do. I think it helped to get him into the presidency. Now we saw a change with uh, Vice President Harris when she said, "Don't come here." So yeah. when you send a message at the beginning of this that "Come here, we'll take care of you and do everything," then they see a giant, giant mass exodus of people headed this way, and then they say, "Don't do it." Now another problem that we have in mixed is you have people like uh, Ocasio Cortez. They go to the border while Trump is the president and, and says they're holding them in cages, they're doing this, they're doing that. Then goes down there during the current administration, sees the same structures, the same things that are going on, and says that there's not a problem. I think that we're sending so many signals in so many different directions, we're going to have to funnel that down in order to just get focus on what we're actually trying to do on the border. Yeah, I mean... The kids in cages, the, the kids and and so they take the cage portion of it out and they put a plexiglass now. So it doesn't look like a cage, but there's still, you know, 80, 90,000 kids coming across the border. And, and I don't really want to get into the kids of the kids in cages and kids in the water tonight because I just wrote an article about it. And if anybody wants to read about it or get a hold of me, just give me a heads up because right now I'm, I'm kind of enraged about it. And I'm trying to decide what I want to do next about everything that's going on with the kids. So, uh, you know, I could read my statement because <laughs> it's just. And so if anybody knows there's unaccompanied alien children or now they call them unaccompanied children coming across the southwest border, a lot of them. And I worked in a cell that was, you know, our goal was to stop these kids from being used as pawns and to go after the smuggling organizations. Same thing is happening now. Um, and it's it's really it, it's amazing how bad it is selfless border right now. And and we are definitely going to get into that because that is an amazing story in and of itself with everything that you did on that. I want to give you some numbers, comparisons of countries crossing the border. Border Patrol is reporting that um, crossing the border for the fiscal year four hundred forty nine thousand, about one hundred and fifty from Mexico. 199,000, almost 200,000 from Honduras, 182, almost 183,000 out of Guatemala, 60,000 out of El Salvador, and then you got 183, give or take, from other countries. The first question that I present to you is, you look at all these other countries compared to Mexico, they're half or even, even less than that of how many are coming across in Mexico? So the question that I have is, how bad is it that that is the main? Is it because they're the closest? Is it because they've been given the most mixed signals? What is it that makes their num numbers so much higher than these other countries? Why are Mexicans coming across more? Yeah. That's just, that's natural. That's a natural progression. They come over, they work seasonally, and they go back down south. They send money south. Every uh, Christmas I saw here. that. Yeah, so I mean that's a that's always going to happen. 
But let's take a look. I'm, you know, if everybody out there goes to cbp.gov and just looks up Southwest Land Border Encounters, you'll find incredible stats right now. I mean, yeah, this fiscal year alone, 1.1 million. And that means from October till June. That's not even counting all of July. 1.1 million. The same time in 2020, 458,000. 2019, 977. But that was for the whole years. Now, right, right. We're, we're halfway we're through. We're at 1.1. <laughs> right. And we're half, that's for, you know. So, I mean, let's take a look at some of the geography that's coming across, too. And this is one thing I always, I like to focus on this. It's because a lot of people forget about this variable. Uh, let me look up these stats. So ask me a couple questions while I look up these stats. Sure, so I, sure. I want some people to. So what I want to talk to you about, another thing is what I saw a lot of <clears throat> that we had a problem with was dropping at the border. And what I mean by that is whether that was to have a child on the United States side, dropping them for medical care. My wife was a nurse that worked right down by the border when she was in nursing school, worked in a hospital right there. Now, of course, you have to give medical care when they come across, but you had people that were uh, purposefully waiting until their kids were sick enough to drop them on the other side in order for them to receive medical care. You run into a couple problems there. One, it drains our medical system, and two, you get a lot more unaccompanied minors coming across. Yeah, you know, the dropping kids over here for care, that's an anomaly. Sending these kids here to meet up with, quote unquote, family or other people, that's the other thing. Um, we do, you know, the, the tourist uh, pregnancies coming over here and having babies, that's been going on forever. Right. Especially with like China and everybody else like that. So, yeah, that's just specifically having kids parents dropping their kids at the border you're not going to see a lot of that happen you will see a lot of smugglers bring kids across the border traffickers but wouldn't you agree the parents have to be part of that what do you mean part in, of that, in order kids, for the smugglers yeah. to bring them across the parents have to be part of that operation oh, yeah, yeah, at yeah. some there's, point there's in there's that some, line yeah there's some sort of family member that's involved with having that kid cross our border which is sickening in itself is imagine putting a baby in the hands of some smuggler and you know the videos are out there now and they're coming and i wish we had more of them where the smugglers are dropping the babies across the fence or just leaving them on the side of the border okay i got those stats for okay you. so if you go into the cbp.gov and you put in fiscal year um we'll do fiscal year 2021 and just look at these numbers and citizenship citizenship grouping this is all other than mexican other than el salvador other than guatemala honduras and mexico this is other okay you've had in this fiscal year alone 187,634 coming across the border now i'm not gonna this isn't one of those alarming things and this isn't like oh my gosh what are we going to do this is something i brought up when i used to work there uh, for DHS. I said, what are we doing about these people coming from special interest countries, i.e. Syria, Ethiopia, Somalia, somewhere where they might have some sort of terrorist roots. And they didn't really have a plan. We've had 187 people come, 187,000 people this fiscal year alone coming. You know, 
as well as I do, if you've never been encountered by law enforcement or an intelligence agency, either here or overseas, that you will not show up on any database. Absolutely. If your phone's never been pinged, nothing else. So when they say we're going to do extreme vetting, we're going to vet them at the border or anything else, what are you going to vet them against? When you have 187,000 people coming across the border in this fiscal year alone from another than Mexico and Central America, yeah, maybe there's some coming from South America. That's a given. Maybe Brazil or somewhere. But a lot of times what people do is they transit in through Brazil. They come up through that southwest corridor and they take the same smuggling routes as everybody else does and they end up here on our southwest border they present themselves to a customs and border protection officer or border patrol officer and they claim asylum now an asylum officers they're going to err on the side of caution nine times out of ten and they're going to say well they may have a, a really good claim here i don't nothing shows up on any databases nothing shows up here and they're going to get a, a date to go see an immigration judge and you know whether or not there's enough bed space to house them they'll probably most likely get released absolutely they'll get released into the interior of the country now how many people were overstays on 9 11. how many of the 19. i believe it was a, a bunch of them were yeah. overstays yeah 19 people and what do we have coming up next month 20th yep. anniversary yeah. september 11th yeah so you know when you start talking about the economic migration, you talk about narco trafficking. It's there, you know, there are two things that have been part of my life for a long time. But the other thing is terrorism. You know, terrorism is still happening. They didn't just go away because of all this other COVID and everything else. If anything, they're probably more emboldened. They're more emboldened now that we left Afghanistan, I believe, and Iraq. Because, hey, you know what? Um, they've been doing this stuff forever. They've had generations. So now we have, um, what, over the past several fiscal years, we've got 400,000 people here from other countries. You know how many immigration judges we have right now? 460. 460 to adjudicate all of these cases. 460 to adjudicate these cases, plus also the million backlog cases. And that includes the little kids coming across the border. Because what happens is they get issued a notice to appear. That means notice to appear in front of an immigration judge. And that's it. They have to, you need more judges. You need triple the judges. You need Then you need the support staff. And then you need people down at the border to process. And it's it's just a never ending cycle. But and it's, it's, this isn't anything new, but, and that's why it needs to be fixed. But don't you think at a certain point the answer is, and this is what I was, you know, kind of going towards, you have to stop the bleeding at a certain point. At a certain mm -hmm. point, you have to cut that off. The asylum, all that kind of stuff, you have to, until we can regroup and figure it out and get more staff in place, get more judges in place, you can't continue because you'll never catch up. And sooner or later, it's going to overwhelm the system, which it already has overwhelmed the system. But what I mean is a catastrophic overwhelming of the system. Well, we're hemorrhaging at the border. And it's not just all asylum claims. It's a lot of different things. And my viewpoint is this we have seven we had 17 consulates in south and uh, consulate stations in uh, central america we need to make 
we need to enhance them. We need to have more opportunities for people to come down there and claim refugee status down south, not coming here and doing it. You're always going to need asylum. Um, there's a humanitarian I mean, it says people are, you know, running from some sort of death and violence. So in our country, it's great for bringing people in. You can't stop it completely, but we need to readjust what our focus is right now. And, and we so, need to hire. And so how do we do that? Hire, hire, hire. And then we need to have them go through specific training to be able to determine whether or not they have legitimate asylum claims right off the bat. Erring on a side of caution is great, but sometimes you have to look at it and say, hey, am I erring on a side of caution or am I just, you know, adverse to risk? So let me pose this to you because I've heard you say this. You say not just money at a wall. Uh, you hire good and give them the resources to pay informants. Now, I see a couple problems with it, and I think you will too. Uh, no one wants the job on the border. It's overwhelming. You speak about it yourself, border burnout. Yeah. Law enforcement is reaching a burnout level. In general, oh, yeah. law yeah. enforcement, whether I'm talking state, local, federal, border patrol, whatever it may be, it's reaching a burnout level because of everything and the current climate that's going on. So no one wants that job. So who do we give it to? Do we lower the standards? Because we're seeing the same thing in law enforcement. No one wants no, the job. Exactly. Yeah, you can't lower the standards. One thing I did, I, I posed this a few years ago, and I said, look, why don't we mobilize the military? And we're not talking putting infantry boots on the ground. We're talking about a medical battalion and an MB battalion that essentially knows how to do detaining operations. And we run them through the gambit there. You know, you have drill weekends. You have tons and tons of people in the reserves and stuff. Now that we're not fighting two large-scale operations, maybe it's time to start looking at our southwest border and going down there and not militarizing the border. I'm not saying that. I'm saying supplement the border patrol with detainee operations and with medical service battalions. What do you think about that? You're prior MP. No, I, I, I agree with that. Also, right now in Texas, the National Guard is working all kinds of border operations in Texas. Um, the problem that I see with it, and I want to pose the question to you is you say, don't militarize it. And you and I both know that's not militarizing it. We're putting staff and people in place that, that we already have available instead of going through that whole process of hiring and background checks. And you're talking yeah, and two and three years down the road, we're putting people in place that we have the problem. Well, you, and that, I have different, you and I have the same optics when it comes to militarization, but Civilians would be like, oh, my gosh, any that's military near the border. That's exactly what I was going to say. And that's my question to you. So how do we stop that optic of the whole world going, you fucking militarize the entire border. You're claiming you're you're trying to uh, stop it with brute force, because once again, that that population is looking at it, who has no fucking idea what they're talking about is looking at it and saying everything. You're just trying to attack it instead of. We're trying to solve a problem. Well, that's the processing points. And, you know, I wrote an op-ed about doing port courts, actually moving. And it's funny because Trump actually did this. As I wrote an op-ed saying, hey, we need to have a port court. We need to move these immigration judges into 10 cities down by the border, even if they're going to do VTC, and conduct 
the immigration reviews and everything there. Same thing with the, the militaries. Do a central a processing point, not exactly on the border, but close enough to the border where the people can get transported to. MPs, um, and you, you know you can cross that thing to other people. If you're doing detaining operations, just do detaining operations. You search them, medical screening, and then you, you keep them housed there, and then you process them. If they're from Mexico, you return them to Mexico. Let me put one more problem to you with it, because I told you I agree with you completely on it. Here's another thing I see. You talk about detainee and all those kind of things. Abu Ghraib. You have yeah, people uh, going, exactly. what are you doing? What well, You can't do that. I mean, you, <laughs> I, I just. Well, you know what? We embedded people in Afghanistan, military. Hey, you know what? Make it transparent. Make it absolutely transparent. Okay. How do we do that? You you let the media in. Right now, you can't even go down to see what's going on. Right. You let media in. You have, um, you know, hey, these civilian review boards like to pick on the police. No, I shouldn't say they like to pick on the police. I like to say they, they're there to ensure that the police are doing the right thing, right? <laughs> Same principle. Hey, we don't want another Abu Ghraib on, a, on an American soil. And you know what? Put some parameters in place where you're going to be able to review it. Have someone that's an impartial third party. But you're going to have to do something. You yeah, know, absolutely. Now, here's the at, second problem. We're absolutely at the hemorrhage point. Here's the second problem I see. Every agency, and you know because you worked federal agencies and you worked multiple federal agencies, every agency, whether local, state, federal, wants the most bang for the smallest amount of bucks. Uh-huh. So once again, you run into that problem of we want to do things on a, you know, we want champagne on a beer budget. And there's yeah. there's got to be a crisscross point in there somewhere. There, there's got to yeah. be where we say we want this, but we can't quite achieve that. But we could do this if we just raise it up a little bit and we kind of meet in the middle because right now it's one end or the other. Yeah, there's no, there is no middle ground. Absolutely. How do we find middle ground? Well, I want to know from your point federal, and then I'll talk from a local standpoint. How do you see it? Because when you talk about federal, there's a lot of spending and indiscriminate spending. I wouldn't say it's so much on the local level, but what I would say was they will run something local into the ground or they'll buy bits and pieces of it that don't work together because they don't want to spend the full amount. Therefore, you have a bad product in the end, whether that be computer systems, tracking systems, whatever it may be. They don't want to buy all the components to it. On a federal level, I would think it would be the exact opposite. A lot of indiscriminate spending. Yeah, there is. And, you know, different portions of it will have different spending. So you're going to, let's say we're going to have the infrastructure infrastructure bill right now. We would need a border bill or an immigration bill or, or name it anything you want to name it. So it doesn't sound like we're putting a wall on a border because God knows that's not going to get through. But you need a separate bill and you need different funding for it because no one agency is going to say, hey, I'll put the bill for, you know, across the board. Yeah, they, they won't. And and if you do have one that even comes close to doing that, they're going to want all the credit. 
Therefore, everyone else with that federal sharing program and all that kind of stuff is not going to get what is owed from it because they're going to want in their memorandums of understanding and all that kind of stuff, they're going to want a bigger chunk of the pie. Therefore, you're going to run into the same problem that local aren't going to help. State's not going to help because they're not getting their piece of the pie. So you run into not only the staffing of it, you run into the politics of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, pretty soon I'll, I'll make a decision how far I want to take the, uh, the, the politics portion of it. And how far I want to go with, you know, what I'm feeling about the unaccompanied alien children or minor children, you know. Uh, that's why I really, you know, there's a lot we need to do. And there's a lot that's not happening. And there's a lot of people that want to jump into the game, have no idea what they're talking about. Just because they want to score some political points or some media, stuff like that. But there are way too many kids coming across that southwest border now. And it's not going to stop. And they stopped vetting the sponsors. They're starting moving these thousands and thousands of kids out to, you know, who knows where. Now, in going through your book, um, this was pretty, pretty amazing what you did. Um, This all kind of started with uh, an email that I don't think someone really thought out before they sent out. Um, From what I'm understanding, they they put it out there, but they didn't kind of know the ramifications that were going to come behind what they put out there. Um, No, I think. I think this, so here's, I we used to work for the White House Security Council. They stood up this thing called the Human Smuggling Cells, a conglomerate of DHS staff. And our goal was to provide actionable operational intelligence and game planning for field units to go out and stop the smuggling of people coming across the Southwest border. It turns out a lot of the people coming across the Southwest border were the unaccompanied alien children, UACs. I was part of the cell and I received a spreadsheet from one of my coworkers and that spreadsheet had like thousands of thousands of sponsors. And for people that don't understand what a sponsor is, I'm going to give this very quick brief of this whole situation. A child comes up to the border, either the Customs and Border Protection Officer or the Border Patrol takes them into custody, processes them. Uh, I should say takes them into care, processes them, hands them over to ICE, ICE transports them or they also help the processing. They transfer them to a non-law enforcement agency called Health and Human Services, Office of Refugee Resettlement, who then hands them over to a contracted facility, a sponsor facility. And what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to, a sponsor will come in. And this is almost like a foster care system. A sponsor sponsor will come in and take that child into custody. There's four different categories. And, you know, from family members on all the way down to like the fourth category, which is someone who's not a family member. Turns out that these sponsors were supposed to be having their fingerprints taken, were supposed to be monitored, were supposed to be having follow-up checks, were supposed to be able to determine, run their basic identification to determine if they were criminals. Turns out that wasn't happening. And I found a spreadsheet of, and this is just a snapshot, there was was 29,000 names on this. And this is out of about 200,000 people that have already been sponsors. Out of the 29,000 names, 3,400 turned out to have some sort of criminal record, including sex offenders. I said, hey, you know what? This spreadsheet's a month old by the time we got it. Um, Where are the kids now? Oh, uh, deaf ears. Then I go, well, we're one of the biggest 
agencies out there, DHS, why don't we do an operation, grab these kids, bring them back in a safe custody and determine whether or not we're going to send them to a, some sort of safe haven, like whether that's like another a, a vetted sponsor and that fell on deaf ears. So I blew the whistle. And I always say I legally blew the whistle. I went to the Office of Special Counsel. Absolutely. And I didn't do a snow and I didn't leak anything. I had opportunities to do it legally. So I did. And uh, yeah, it turned out to be a shit show. Nothing um, happened right away. Um, But I did work with Senator Grassley to ensure um, that eventually the government started doing the fingerprints. They started doing the criminal history checks. They passed it that they would. Um, I also did work with Senator Grassley on these special interest alien countries, uh, vetting issues I had and all sorts of other stuff about the border. Um, It turns out a few months ago in March of this year, because of this massive influx um, of children coming back across the border, they stopped vetting sponsors. And just the other day I did it, I was on News Nation the other day talking about this. the border patrol stops someone acting like a sponsor trying to bring a kid across and then pick them back up as a sponsor who turned out to be a sex offender so who knows where how many thousands of these kids are ending up if they're ending up with sex trafficking and labor trafficking because part of that group grassley found out was that a lot of these kids were ending up in you know the farms doing forced labor so there's a lot of stuff going on with that and it it boggles my mind and it just you know well, I, I want to talk about this case a little bit because I want to break down some more intricacies of it because I thought it was pretty I interesting. We, I think we might be doing a part two interview soon because <laughs> I've got a. Oh, good. I gotta, I but let, let's break down a little bit of this. I thought there were some crazy things that were maybe statements that were made. Um, they made a statement, uh, I, I guess, the people that you were working with in the human smuggling cell, that criminality ranges from illegal entry to sex crimes against children. And they put a couple other ones in there. There were some DWIs and, and stuff like that. But it almost seems flippant to say it that way. Criminality uh-huh. ranges. It doesn't matter. It's criminality. So what you're going to have is a problem one way or the other. The biggest one was illegal entry. So what happens? Well, illegal reentry, because here's the deal with illegal reentry. Okay. Is that it's a federal offense. Absolutely. Reentry after deportation, 18 U.S.C. 1326. What if you're a sponsor of a child? You get picked up and you get arrested for uh, reentry after removal or deportation, and you go to jail, and they don't know that you're sponsored a kid. You know? Well, they're not gonna. You're not gonna say anything. And number yeah, two, exactly. isn't the second time you're picked up, you're banned for ten years automatically, right, from reentry? Yeah, but there's. I, you're, I, you're, I, I, I mean, we're finding someone to. You know, there's always going to be some sort of discretion depending on the administration. Uh, you're supposed to be banned, but you've had numerous people coming across multiple reentries after deportation with criminal offenses who aren't even getting prosecuted. So you're supposed to be. But how is that a, a, a suitable sponsor for someone? It's not. Exactly. So going into it a little more, as you bring this up to them, to your chain of command, they tell you we have no immediate action planned. No. no. Okay. That doesn't even make sense. We have no immediate action. Then make an immediate action plan. 
you, yeah, there, there has to be. Yeah, th that's why it's called an immediate action plan. You can and change it as it goes. I sometimes wonder, like when these when these people get into these positions, senior positions, if they lose their concept of reality. Because it, it, uh, you know, I was thinking at the time this was happening, people are jockeying for promotions and jockeying for this. It's a, the next year's, it's going to be 2016. It's going to be an election year. We don't want anything to do with this. And it's just, it, it's very disheartening. And to see this happening again, uh, yeah. Now to go on top of that, you had all the information available to you. You had last known address, alleged names, photographs, biopic, uh, biographic data. You had all of these things at your fingertips already. That ties back into that no immediate action plan. There's your action plan. Mm -hmm. You have all the stuff available to you. Not only were you told no immediate action, you were told to stand down. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, after, you know, when I went to the Office of Special Counsel, I kept arguing back and forth with Health and Human Services through my OSC, or the Office of Special Counsel attorney, back and forth because they didn't want to vet the list. They came up with a snapshot. I'll have to look at the data again, but I think they looked at 25 of those 29 and said 29,000 and said, oh, well, only one of them, one of those 25 has any real criminality. I said, come on. If you, you know, I got to pull up the, pull it up again, but I have responses online um, and they're at the OSC website. So if anybody ever wants to know about whistleblowing, if you go to the OSC website, they have the agency's responses and they have that you can provide a response as well. And I did provide my responses. I'll have to pull them up for you and shoot you an email with that because I, I really went in depth and said, look, you, the data you're arguing against is your data. So it made no sense. And to people out there, there's a lot of this out there. Uh, if you Google my name, you'll find a lot of the information about it out there. And uh, I'll gladly answer any questions. So here's my kind of, not my final question of that, because we got to get into a couple more little things about this case. But the big thing is, is you're told to stand down. People aren't listening to you. This is going to be a huge stain, no matter how you look at it, um, on the government as a whole, I would think, that this is going on. Because you're going to catch it from both ends. One, you're going to catch it from people that are all about uh, bringing people over here for uh, good reasons to get them a better life. So you're going to get that problem. And then number two, you're going to get that you've lost control at the border because you uh -huh. can't even control who's taking who across the border. You're once again in yes, a no-win situation. Yeah. So... If immediate action is done like you organized or like you said to do, do you cut this off and stop it from being such a stain without people even realizing it? What I'm asking is you see the problem there. You make immediate action on it. It's still a problem, but do you just address, like you said, with clear and concise language? Look, we found out there was a problem. It had slipped by us. We are now working to fix the problem. Isn't that better in the end? Yeah, absolutely. That's what they should have done. And then fix the problem. 
they still didn't want to vet the sponsors. It took, you know, Grassley calling them on a carpet three or four times. So I, I guess my question is, I don't understand why they didn't want to vet these people. It's not a simple it's, process, but it's a necessary process. Yeah. It, it, the thing is, that there's two different sides. One side says, they, you know, the if you, someone's here present or someone's here illegal, they're not going to want to come forward. Okay. Um, because they're going to get vetted. The problem with that is the people doing the vetting aren't immigration. It would have to be uh, whoever the contractor facility is. And then the other thing is, if they're criminals, they're not going to come forward. So, and the, the goal is to get these kids out of custody so quick that nobody even knows they're there. And that's what the problem we're having now is like, they want these kids out of, uh, I call it safe havens and put into unknown variables as quick as possible because they don't want them to be looked at as quote unquote kids in cages. Well, that brings up the next point. Great. Uh, MS 13, a lot of them are sneaking in as, uh, unaccompanied minors. You're seeing that problem. The problem with that is they're releasing them within 72 hours. Just like you said, they're trying to get them through the system so fast and get done whatever they say they're getting done that these guys are getting released within 72 hours. And we don't even need to go into the damage and destruction the MS-13 has done in the no, United States. No, not at all. And I, and I always preface, and I think you probably, if you heard my, a lot of my interviews and stuff, is that I'm always like, hey, look, MS-13 does come across, but the kids I'm always concerned about are the tender age ones. The 13 and below. And yes, a lot of MS-13 can act at any age they want, but it's these tender age, you know, babies and stuff like that, that really concern me. And yes, I'm concerned about all kids coming across the border, but I'm very concerned about the ones who, one, don't know who they're getting released to because one, they never met them. Two, they're, they don't have the faculties because they're babies on up to three or four. They don't know who that person is. Right. That, and yes, MS-13 comes across all the time. Even Grassley brought that up. I brought that up in a bunch of things. So yeah, that, and that's the other concerning is who else is sneaking in with these unaccompanied alien children, minor children. So what was the answer to that? What do you mean? What, what answer did your uh, chain of command give when you brought up and the senator brought up, look, MS-13, these other ones are coming in. I would love to hear what the answer they gave compared to some of these other answers that they gave. Yeah, they don't they don't address those. And, you know, some of those same people, uh, you know, you and I will have a, a little conversation when we get off on about some of these same people that have been talking heads that are during cross uh, cross. What do you call it? Presidentials. So we'll talk about that a different line about the same people who called on a carpet who later on become commentators so yeah well brother i think we might have to do a part two yeah absolutely so let's finish this up real quick whistleblowing um it got you uh caused your detail to be terminated without cause then you received the prestigious director's award <laughs> it's not crazy i don't know how that happens but uh I don't how did I that award so. ceremony go oh they just handed it to me because then they said that um only a certain amount of people can go to the award ceremony. <laughs> See, people don't understand. I don't know if I put this in the books or not, but I actually co-authored and wrote uh, the business plan and the charter for the human smuggling cell, like literally wrote it. Uh, so, yeah. And then I came up with the vetting. So 
I'll have to dig it up because it's it's open source. It's out. It's online now. It's the questions that Grassley asked uh, Jay Johnson about the the special interest alien countries. People, I came up with a vetting thing that they used for that. So uh, I'll dig all that stuff up and I'll make sure you you have links. Yeah, absolutely. I I thought that was a a great way to end the story was you're fired, but here's an award. Yeah, the actual ICE director's award. I get the ICE director's award literally like two weeks after I get terminated from that detail. Let me go into the, the, this, uh, (laughs) how I got terminated from this detail. Okay. So back and forth with home, uh, HHS, it's going on for three months, nothing's changing, and I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, look, they're not changing the process. They're, they keep trying to devalidate the, the information they gave. So I said, look, I will confidentially sit down with all the HHS people through the phone, remain anonymous, and explain everything that happened. But one thing I want is I want a list of all the names of the people that were in this meeting with me, and then my I need to remain anonymous. This is on a Thursday night. Wednesday or Thursday night. I think it's a three-day weekend. I sit. I I'm in, I'm in the parking lot of the HSC in my my uh, car, talking to these people. Back and forth, back and forth. We're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, how do you know all this information? How do you know it's validated? And uh, what is your background? And I'm, I'm at the time I wasn't even thinking. I said, well, I'm a certified fraud examiner, and I work closely with this HSC. Only one certified fraud examiner I know that works anywhere near that stuff. And I said I worked with near the closely with this human smuggling cell. The next business day I showed up, my detail was terminated. <laughs> and this is like, I, I we know bummed. there's only one of you guys. So it had to be you. And literally the next, you can't make it up. No. And then they, they brought me back to headquarters. They put me in a cube in the middle of everybody. So my cubicle, you could tell people were messing with my cubicle, like looking through stuff. My email started getting corrupted. I started thinking I see G-Rides up the road. It turned into a very peculiar situation. And I'm lucky I was able to find another job uh, and get out of there as soon as possible. But that is that is my story, brother. That is a... Uh... That is absolutely insane. So let's let's move on to what you're doing right now and kind of wrap this whole thing up. So first, let's talk about the Protectors podcast. Season three, it's going crazy. Let's talk about it. Let me get my radio voice. Okay. So let me tell you about the Protectors. So yeah, I, uh, I wanted to do something different because a couple of years, what was it, probably about three years ago, I started doing like the Fox News all the time. I in every news I was on all the time talking about the border and Homeland Security. I wanted to have an outlet where it was just about bringing really cool stories from the protector community and protector communities, law enforcement, military, emergency responders, and those that support them. And as since season three has since transpired to protectors, you, me, family members, people who would protect their house, people that will protect their neighbor. So protectors has trans, it's just, it's gone beyond just being that, you know, the thin green line, the thin blue line, the thin red line. And it's, it's just turned into a really great thing. I'm up to about 240 guests. And if you go with the live shows, I'm probably somewhere around 280 or something like that. And I've had some incredible guests, everybody from, you're going to be coming on soon enough, I'm sure, uh, to every New York Times bestseller, thriller writer you can imagine, to you know Medal of Honor uh, recipients, Purple Heart recipients, really cool heroes, everyday people 
um, actors to just anybody within a protected community. And I, I really, you know, it's a very down and dirty 25, 30 minute interview. And it's just trying to raise awareness of some really good people going out there. Well, and I, I think, you know, a lot of people say silent majority, but I think that silent majority is getting a lot louder um, because, uh-huh. you know, uh, I paid, I was recently on vacation in Washington state and I paid $4 and eight cents a gallon for gas. I mean, oh it's just insane. Let's also talk about your weekly appearances on court TV. Um, oh, court TV. I'll be on there twice this week. Man. Yeah. Uh, it, it's pretty interesting to watch. They just kind of, I, I like how they do it because they'll show the, the ones that I've seen, they'll show a video clip and they'll go, okay, go. What do you think about that? And you're like, uh, uh-huh. okay, this is what I think. Uh, here's what I think. Yeah. There's uh, no real setup for it. You know, coincidentally, an ICE attorney got me, uh, introduced to them. Oh, really? And this was, yeah, September of 2020. So I've literally been on there almost every week, give or take about three total, three, four total weeks since September. Uh, last week, and I'll be on twice this week, Tuesday and Thursday. Nice. So what I what it is, it's a crime time segment, right? 9.35 at night. Get on there. They give us four scenarios. They're not even scenarios. They're four recent events, whether it's a kidnapping, officer-involved shooting, assaults, um, a lost cat, something like they always throw once in a while, they throw a zinger in there. Like this officer saved like a family of ducks, but it's really, it's very interesting. I think it kind of, uh, they're trying to mimic the live PD type thing where you're, you know, you're talking about the cases, but I love doing that, man. I love commentary. I, I, I think it's interesting because something that's always surprised me or all something that I've always thought was funny being law enforcement you hear over and over and over the talking heads. Everyone hates law enforcement. Everyone hates law enforcement. They, you know, this and that. <laughs> Yet everyone wants to know what's going on in law enforcement, whether it be uh-huh. these dumb TV shows, whether it be live shows where it's live PD or cops or whatever. People want to see it. And it's always been amazing to me that people will say, I hate, it, I hate it, I hate it. I've seen where detectives from the first 48 get out on a scene and people will come up to them for autographs. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I I love that you've done that. My only question to you would be, what does it feel like to be able to say whatever you want? Because now you're out of law enforcement. So. And are we looking? No, I'm still in law enforcement. I just don't talk about what I do. Right. What I mean by that is. In my current position, I can't just make any statement that I want to make. That's a, a lot of people. How does it feel to be uh-huh. able to talk how you want to talk? Well, you know, for the agency I currently work for, I don't talk about anything they do or any type right. of techniques, techniques or procedures, what they do. I basically, like I teach, I'm a professor as well. So I use a lot of my either previous experience or I use whatever I teach because I teach all my security, criminal justice, cybersecurity and everything you can imagine. So that's kind of, I use that expertise, if that makes sense. But it is very nice to say, hey, look, that over there is something I'm like, huh, maybe he didn't do the right thing. Maybe they did, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and that's, I think that's why you will see a lot, because I've talked to uh, police officers on the show, uh, the the Night Stalker. Um, uh-huh. I, I, I talked to the the lead detective from that. And, and you see almost um, like just... 
a weight lifted off them when they can talk about stuff and they're not held to, they can just talk about it openly, what they feel about it, how they actually feel inside. And you see a completely different side of law enforcement when you do that. So I always like to ask guys, cause you don't talk about really, cause I, I'm kind of being struck that you are still in law enforcement. Cause I had no idea. Yeah. I keep that really, uh, I just, I just don't talk about it, you know? Yeah. I talk a little about, I try to talk about things that I can speak facts to. Right. So I keep a lot of contacts within Homeland Security. I keep a lot of contacts in the border. Um, I write a lot as I write as much as I can. Yeah. And I try to keep current because I don't want to be one of those guys that just talk shit out of their ass. You can say it. No, it's yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I've, I've dropped a couple of, uh, yeah. Um, (laughs) and speaking about that writing, yeah, yeah, and speaking about that writing, two books underneath you, you have all kinds of publications done. Do you feel like you're done or do you got a lot more to give? Oh, I'm just starting. What's next for you? I am writing a book on trafficking now. I wrote an op-ed I just submitted about podcasting and combat and how it relates to PTSD. And then I also, um, I'm writing an article right now about gold star families. I'd like to, I, I write things that I want people to know. You started the Gold um, Star the, Family article today, right? Yeah, I started that one today. So hopefully I'll be able to knock that out by this weekend and just shine, shine a light on some really good people. Because that's really, you know, I don't make a dime off the, uh, the podcast. I actually, I, I just started, I just got a sponsor. Still haven't got a check, hint, hint, if you're out there. Um, but that'll just pay for some <laughs> of the operating costs. But uh, yeah, I, I just like doing this. I, I don't think I made it. I made a thousand bucks off the books because I give them away for free, basically. I don't, anything I do is like the book Unwavering and Out of the Shadows. I have them priced at cost right now. Yeah. I don't, I want people to understand what's going on. I'd rather do that. Uh, like I said, I'm, I still have a job, so I'm not going to, I'm not out here to make a big buck. Right. I'm not, you know, I teach college on the side. So I don't, whatever I do is more, I don't get paid to write. I don't get paid for court TV. A lot of people think you get paid for that kind of stuff. You don't. Um, I like to do it because I want, I want my voice to be heard. You brought that up before, how that's a different thing. I want to be heard, and I want people to understand topics that are important to me. Yeah, I, I can't, you know, you can't argue with having a goal like that because it's a pretty noble goal, not, you know, wanting money for it, just wanting to be heard because – I think that I've said it before in talking to you and other people. I don't think law enforcement, I don't think those military guys, I don't think their voice gets heard a lot. I think they get put on a back burner and it takes until they retire. It takes until they step away from it to actually get to say something. So it's a great thing that you're doing by being able to be the voice for them. I'm trying brother. And um, I will be writing a fiction book. That's my, when I retire, I'm going to, sit down and knock out a fiction book. I have a really great premise and we're going to make it happen. Have you, uh, have you interviewed Don Bentley? Have you met him? Oh yeah. I've met yeah. Don a few times. He's yeah. Awesome. Great guy. Great, great guy. Dude. He's great in, guy. uh, he's in Texas too. So tell people where they can find you. Uh, Instagram at Dr. Jason Piccolo. Um, I have a website, Jason Piccolo.us. And one thing I, you know, if anybody knows me, they know I love books. I have the protectors book club now. And Don's books are going to be on there. And, you know, I've interviewed probably about 60 or 70, 80 authors. 
Um, so I have a book club. You can go to at Protectors Book Club on Instagram, and we'll have we have a web page, Protectors Book Club, and there will be in uh, Facebook for that as well. And I give away free books all the time. I, I was just um, about to bring that up. Talk about that real quick, because I don't think people know. You're the only guy that I know that they can get a bunch of advanced copies and get them out to the people that he wants to be in the book club. So talk about that a little bit, because that's pretty interesting. So I have a lot of publicists reach out to me and a lot of publishing houses reach out to me now about having the authors on. So lately I've just been asking them, like, hey, can you send me four or five ARCs? And ARCs are advanced reader copies. And I'll make sure that, you know, people within this book club and it's not I, the book club is free. I pay for the shipping. I just do media mail. It costs me 10 bucks to send five books. Uh, they'll send me a whole bunch of copies and I'll send them out. And my only ask is you read it and you review it. Yeah, they uh, they only send me one copy right now. So, um... <laughs> well, once you get to protect, but I'm book club, but I'm starting it? to build that up. So. Uh, let's talk about a couple things where people can find your books, Amazon, Kindle, Barnes and Noble, unwavering a border agent's journey. You've done a second edition to kind of add some things into it. They can find out of the shadows. You're exactly right. Um, they are at cost and you can also get them on Kindle form, um, at a very low cost. Um, I, I think it's great that you have those books out there. They're very fast reads. Uh, and they contain a ton of information in them. Uh, like you said, uh, jasonpiccolo.us, uh, get on Facebook, get on Instagram, uh, get on LinkedIn, get on YouTube. You're pretty much everywhere you turn around in social media. Is there anything else that you want to promote before we wrap this up? No, I think I'm going to knock out Out of the Shadows as a podcast. Okay. And just read it because it's only about 60, 70 pages. So I might put that out as a podcast in the next few weeks just so people have an idea. And I'll update with some of my current thoughts on what's going on at the Southwest border with the children. Yeah, that that's awesome. So, guys, I think that's going to be it for the show tonight. Uh, I thank you so much for coming on. I know you're an extremely busy man, and thanks for um, giving the time just to come here. All the places that you can find him, you'll find him on our Facebook group. If you want some more of me, you can find me on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast. And you can find me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Also, guys, make sure you stop by BlackPointTactical.com. Those guys are awesome. They're going to be on the show next week. They've sent us some holsters. They make some fantastic gear for you guys to use. So make sure you go to BlackPointTactical.com and see them. That's Jason. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys.